This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Appropriate PC deaths. Bone music. The return of recommendation engine. And the Soviet occult. Gasoline, hang gliders, marshmallows, spandex. That's the worst shopping list I've ever heard. I think you mean the best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas Games at this point in the show. Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school. Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element. Like trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider. Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, Once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one. The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose. Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure. That evil genius in training who's chosen wins the round. That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider. Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free. That's 52 cards perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico. And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping too. Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.? Not at all. That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks, too. Now, just like a university essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you. In Mad Scientist University, everyone gets an insane assignment. Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen. And then the TA picks a winner. And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free. Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts? If you're playing Mad Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin dash msu. That's atlas-games.com slash kenandrobin dash m like Mike, s like sugar, u like union. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, that's the way to do it. As we enter the friendly confines, the paneling on the walls, the shag carpeting on the floor, we see that there is something different. A pall of death hangs over the table. All the die-twenties have come up ones. The Mountain Dew bottles are empty. And, as foreshadowed in a previous intro, the Doritos are all cool ranch. We have entered the 12 hours of the night. No, we have entered a death-focused episode of The Gaming Hut. Robin, what are we talking about when we talk about death? So this was inspired uh, by something that Batman said. As is everything right and true. As is everything right and true. And uh, not just any Batman, but Lego Batman. Uh, so in the the Lego movie, there's a moment when uh, a Batman, who uh, delightfully is kind of a dick in that film. <laughs> but still Batman. That's what's great about it. Well, yes. <laughs> It's, it's, yeah, it's not just a, he's not just a it's, random... It's not a subversion of Batman. I mean, no. I want to get this right out of the way. It's not where, you know, they're making fun of Batman. He's not a campy Batman. He's not a lame Batman or a gay Batman. He's just a dick and also Batman. Yeah. 
Um, so at anyway, there's a point where uh, he's in his uh, also uh, bat craft, and I think uh, Lego water is coming into his bat craft or, or something. I forget the exact details. But anyway, he says, this is not how Batman dies. And of course, he doesn't die. And that inspired the idea that, uh, yes, the one of the big differences between uh, fiction and role-playing, and Batman is obviously very uh, clear on the metafictional boundaries at, at work here, <laughs> is that characters... Uh, die mostly in appropriate ways in fiction. And when a character dies uh, just completely as a surprise out of the blue, that's a deliberate subversion of our expectation that characters should uh, die or even not die, as in this case, in appropriate ways. So that leads to the question of, do we want to, uh, first of all, address that in role-playing? And if we do, how do we go about doing so? So, Ken, do you see the fact that uh, character death is often random and unpredictable in gaming as uh, something that might, in some circumstances, be addressed, or as one of the strengths of role playing that you don't want to mess with? Well, I mean, certainly, it uh, as with so many things, it depends on the game, much as deaths in fiction depend on the genre of fiction or the or the metier that the author is working in. Deaths in movies depend on the film. Uh, deaths in role-playing depend on the game. So a random, pointless death in Call of Cthulhu kind of is narratively correct, even if it's a randomly pointless death by rolling a double out on your piloting roll and crashing the plane into the side of a glacier instead of a properly random and pointless death being torn to shreds by a Shoggoth. But you're still dying randomly and pointlessly, and I think that that emphasizes the themes of the game. Now... I think it would be that, an interesting exercise to come up with a, a death in Call of Cthulhu that would not feel appropriate. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, again, you're you're really sort of, um, uh, <laughs> you're spoiled for choice in terms of appropriate death in CFC. But in a, a game that is more thematically driven, you'd, you'd feel a little stupider having your character in, say, Vampire, which is about theme and mood and, and constructing a sort of a... A poetic truth, at at least, of your character. You'd, you'd feel a little dumb if, if your vampire character didn't die being staked by a, a government um, a death squad, and they didn't die being torn apart by a werewolf. They just sort of, you know, died because they got trapped in the umbra or some some sort of lame, unvampire-y way to die. And then you'd go all the way into your your really narratively focused games, like, say, Dogs in the Vineyard, where really the only way for a dog to die is being gunned down by a by an agent of the devil. And if he isn't, then he has, you know, failed as a, as a story about a dog who gave his life for the king of life and for civilization. So It's, it's not only the means of death, but also the uh, point in the story at which you die right, yeah. that can seem incongruent with the rest of the narrative. So that if you die with a whole lot of story threads undeveloped. Uh, if you that happens in a TV show, you know the actor left the show after a contract dispute. Uh -huh. uh, but <laughs> if it happens in a role-playing game, it can often feel like a cheat. That right. you're in the middle of trying to investigate the murder of your sister uh, 20 years ago, and then you just get randomly... Uh, you know, rocks fall on you and you die in a way that doesn't relate to your investigation into the death of your sister, particularly. Um, and that leaves all the other characters going, well, do we still care about the death of his sister? Do we keep going or do we uh, just all go out for coffee until one of our melodramatic hooks gets activated? What do we do here? Yeah. And so uh, that raises the question of whether it is interesting and whether players will accept it if your 
chance of dying in whatever fashion changes depending on where you are in the storyline. And in fact, that is something that I've done in a couple of games in uh, Hero Quest mechanics. If it's a climactic scene, uh, which by its uh, very nature implies that something is being resolved, uh, you have a, a greater chance of dying than in a uh, scene that leads up to a climactic scene that's essentially connective tissue that, that develops you in that direction. And uh, in the new Feng Shui, again, uh, if your uh, melodramatic hook just got resolved, or if, again, you're at a big climactic, big finish, you have a, a greater chance of succumbing to uh, death and the canto pop music playing sadly as your friends have a montage of all the great times they had with you previously than, again, if it's just sort of a, uh, a mid-range fight that connects you from the fight that set up your conflict to the fight that resolves it. Yeah, the uh, it can be a little tricky. I think in, in it, you could also sort of do that in an ad hoc way. For example, if you were running Fate, you could just say, you know, everyone is got an aspect that you can call on that is like first act. And so if you die, you say, no, I'm going to activate the first act aspect and get get the reroll on that uh, that that thing because it's just the first act. My character can't die. That's that's ridiculous. And so you could then have. Of course, another aspect then that the GM can call on in the in the third act or fourth act, where it's well, then now the aspect is is fourth act. Now your deaths make dramatic sense, so the the chances go up, and so you can sort of do it ad hoc with with games that have hero points or or bennies just by differently budgeting the the the, the hero point budget. I think that. One of the interesting questions that people ask in the old school Renaissance, as opposed to the tiresome questions, like you know, <laughs> how did how did uh, how did Gary actually roll a die twenty? Was it underhand or overhand? I think it's more interesting to ask questions like, in you know, when we were first playing this in in a in a war game, when your treasured uh, SS Panzer unit is shot out from under you during the the charge on Kharkov, you know, you're ticked off. But you don't have a narrative sense of, of death, and even if it contravenes history, even if you know these guys actually stormed all the way to the Don River, you're saying, well, this is why we play war games. It's an alternate history. The the, that Panzer unit does not have a melodramatic hook. Right. It doesn't have a... And even though you could say, well, you know, die, you know, trying to take some nowhere Ukrainian village, this is not how 3rd SS Panzer dies. It actually, historically, might be how 3rd SS Panzer could have died if they'd done something as stupid as you just did. Right. And early D&D obviously came out of that wargaming culture, and so you, your cleric died, man up, roll up another cleric. But at some point, and very early in the process, people start having story arcs, and I'm wondering, you know, when did, when did Dave fudge the dice? Did Dave never fudge the dice? And if Dave said he never fudged the dice, like all great GMs, Dave probably lied to his players. And so... <laughs> illusionism! Rank illusionism! Rank illusionism! And, and so the, and so the, sort of the question in the early, uh, material, because of course, to an extent, D&D rapidly settles into a mechanical power curve where when you're early in your story arc, you're only fighting giant rats and, and, and rot grubs, and it's only later when you're when you're fighting things that could actually really kill you, unless you're the wizard who can always be really killed, up until, you know, you get sweet fireball. But it, even then, there's resurrection spells, there's all kinds of ways to, to sort of put the buffers into the lane and prevent your character from dying even very early in D&D's progress. So I think that these sorts of questions don't just come out of sort of the narrative story gaming universe or the post-vampire story gaming universe or even the post-Cthulhu genre emulation universe. I think that they go all the way back to 
we really want Todd to keep coming back and playing because he's the guy who always brings the Mountain Dew, and if we kill his character, well, I don't know, he's not going to take it well. And also, right, or if he's the one that we've given the uh, talking amulet to, and there's a prophecy about him, mm-hmm. and that's the cool thing that we've uh, sort of entered into the storyline without even necessarily thinking of the word storyline. So uh, maybe we should let him uh, cheat a bit more. This doesn't feel right. right. Yeah. Your mention of the war genre suggests, uh, you know, a role-playing, uh, another role-playing genre where uh, random death should absolutely be part of the governing assumption, and that's the the war genre, right? That the whole idea there is that well, you're portraying actual war and that actual war is nothing if not completely random and that any character who's in a war it's appropriate that they should die at any moment because they are in a war the other uh difficulty is if you start uh, saying to players that you you know are more likely to die when you resolve your storyline uh certain players will take (laughs) that uh, not only in stride but will love that others who have more of a, a character protective mode that their character is a resource to be carefully husbanded are going to say, well, in that case, I should never resolve my storylines. And uh, uh, probably a better way to handle that is to say, you know, like Batman as the uh, uh, water Legos are flowing toward him, that you get to specify certain instances in which you cannot be killed killed uh, some other bad thing can happen to you, right? You, you might lose your bat craft or, or whatever the equivalent is, but that you may uh, have the option as a player to say, this is not a poetically appropriate death for me. Yeah, some number of, of outs that everyone agrees ahead of time don't break the fiction, where it's like, oh, he was only mostly dead or whatever. I had a sort of an experience of that in Unknown Armies recently, and one of the great things about running any game with uh, magic that the GM can uh, control at will or can um, uh, introduce is that you do have these sorts of outs. But uh, one of the characters has been built up and built up and built up to be a gunfighter in an unknown armies. When you roll the, the dice, you do the damage that's on percentile dice with a gun. So it can go anywhere from nothing to instantly dead, no take backs in one shot. There's not a lot of, you know, there's a very swingy uh, damage roll. And sure enough, he <laughs> gets into a gunfight through an open door against Billy the Kid, and guess what? Billy rolls an 87, and he's dead. And he, he was dead for the rest of the gunfight, certainly. And the question became, are we emphasizing the, the code of the West here, and the, that any man can die? Or are we actually, you know, like you say, he was a, a festival of story hooks that had not yet come to fruition. The nature of Unknown Armies is that you can always come up with some horrible consequence to coming back to life so that worked out well enough but it does it it does bring up questions about what the gm should have i mean you're talking about the the numbers of no take backs and i think the player characters the players would have been okay if i'd said nope that's why you don't open doors in, in the wild west with billy the kid on the other side but i think they were also sort of relieved that we don't have to then rebuild the the, the gaming group around, you know, the, the new guy, whoever he would have been. Yeah, the, the cost to introducing a new character into the game is often borne by the GM and the other players mm-hmm. uh, more than it is by the uh, player uh, whose uh, character bites it, who gets to have the fun of creating a new character. But it's often very difficult to create a replacement character who is as engaged with what is already rolling uh, as the original was. 
and because you can see that kind of cost even in abstract coming forward, I think that it it behooves the GM to sort of foreshadow the possibility of not just arbitrary death, but of arbitrary life return, and often with, as you say, maybe a bad consequence, like not just losing your batcraft, but being in hock to the goddess of death or whatever. You know, that there's some kind of story consequence that has been tacked on, because you you were resurrected for story purposes. Now story, you owe story something. And part of this also goes to scenario design, in that if you know when you're uh, working on an adventure that this sequence is a bridge between two sequences that that really matter, and it needs to be there for sort of a logic or a, a break in mood or whatever it is, that you make sure the consequences in it are not utterly deadly that they will destroy the premise of your uh, rest of your scenario if they come to fruition. So, uh, you know, that's the adventure design version of don't write yourself a check that you're not going to want to cash yeah. around yeah. the table. Yeah, yeah, don't don't write um uh, a boulder that can roll that can actually crush indie in the first scene of your story because you're just going to have to come up with another archaeologist in a real hurry. Yes. Although, I guess, I guess actually the skeletons in that scene are the previous PCs that uh, <laughs> yes. Spielberg and the Lucas old, were not old, careful enough to preserve. Harrison Ford's previous characters. Ah, come on, man. All right. How about Indiana Jones? <laughs> uh, Oklahoma Jones. <laughs> Oklahoma so Jones is dead. Well. Massachusetts Jones is dead. I'm not going to give up on this. Yeah. Well, it's a good thing uh, Indy made his roles or it would have been Rhode Island Jones. Right. Yes. That sounds like a total... That sounds like a either a, a drug fixation or a soda pop or something. Anyway, I think we're digressing into lunacy, and therefore, before uh, the, the segment dies, we should move on to the next one. This episode is also brought to you by the Plot Points Podcast. Plot Points views role-playing games through the lens of literature. Plot Points takes a deep look at adventures from dozens of systems. Discover the link between Pathfinder's We Be Goblins and the poetry of Christina Rossetti. Learn how the recession of 2008 aided the recent flowering of geek culture. Can a role-playing game have a political leaning? Hear about a friendly local game store that pays Game Masters. How can gaming give meaning to life other than by paying Game Masters? Listen to an advanced review of the Dracula dossier. Well, I'm sold. Need we say more? Probably not, but there are still a couple of bullet points left. Novices and grizzled veterans can both find something to enjoy. Entire episode on the Dracula dossier, people. Find the Plot Points podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or at plotpoints.libsyn.com. Listen to us, then listen to them. The retinal scan that you, the viewer, had to undergo in order to listen to this segment informs you that you've once more entered the top secret perimeter of the Tradecraft Hut. And this week we're going to riff on a subject that uh, numerous people brought to my attention, and I bet they brought it to your attention too, Ken. And that's the internet having rediscovered the story of uh, Soviet-era bone music. And this is, of course, in the height of the uh, or the nadir of the Stalin era, however you want to put it. Uh, rock and roll was uh, strictly forbidden. Western music was strictly forbidden. And uh, later, uh, there would actually be a uh, wing of the 
communist youth organization devoted to tracking down all signs of enjoying Western music and extirpating them. Uh, <laughs> now clear channel in America. <laughs> yes, exactly. But uh, at the time, uh, people who wanted, uh, from about 1950 to about 1958, people who wanted to listen to Western pop music, which would mean they were listening to Elvis and Duke Ellington, did so by recording their bootleg recordings onto big, thick, used x-rays uh so that i guess they were sort of on a kind of a big thick acetate sort of uh, substance into which semblance of a vinyl record could be uh, primitively carved and so that you your copy of uh, take the a train or love me tender would be on a x-ray of somebody's skull or femur which uh brings up all sorts of uh exciting uh, possibilities to to riff upon but before we get to that ken are there any other uh, details of this story that you would like to uh bring out for us to savor i think the fun uh, much of the fun obviously is, is what you just said that you could have uh perry como uh etched into someone's um uh, liver cancer or whatever but another of the sort of interesting uh, things about it, or not so much interesting things, but I do want to sort of uh, mention is that once you start letting, you know, the the middleman, the the smuggler, cut your record, they would add their own thing. So you would get like, you know, the guys. Um, uh, no, this is a this is a gallstone, and it's gonna have some really great, uh, you know, Duke Ellington cuts on it. And there's like the first, you know, forty seconds is Duke Ellington, and then the guy who did the recording would either start ranting about how you were a terrible communist. Or he would put his own music in because he wanted you to listen to his music, not some other guy's music. Or there would be some other thing. So, you know, even to the extent... I mean, we talk about subliminals and backmasking and all the ways that the, the Beatles or the, or the evil record companies can put stuff into your music. You know, in, in Russia, the, the music is in the hands of, for lack of a better word, criminals. And uh, certainly people who believe that, you know, risking a bullet is... Is, is that their that their music or whatever they're they're uh, producing is worth risking a bullet? So they are uh, obsessives, fanatics. They are people who are not necessarily solely interested in pressing as many copies of Buddy Holly as as say Buddy Holly's record label was. So there's so there's that. And then the other thing is, if anyone hasn't seen the the, the Soviet hipster film Still Yagi uh, from 2008, the opening credits show the process of making bone music. And so um, it's it's not a fully successful movie, but it's kind of a great look into that uh, weird hepcat uh, Stalinist world that that existed up until you know, Khrushchev. Actually, speaking of uh, post-Stalin, uh, shut it down with, as you say, the special uh, branch of Komsomol. So I, you know, before we even get into what does it mean if you have um, uh, Count Basie versus Louis Armstrong on your um, uh, on your heart murmur. The I, another question is, who's putting what onto your heart murmur, and what's their agenda about? Right, because the idea, of, if we think for a moment about who the criminals were in the Stalin era, they're the hardest of the hardcore. Yeah, they're, they're the guys the, that eventually know, become the Russian mafia. Yeah, they're the the Voria Sikone, the uh, the thieves uh, who have the thieves code, and mm -hmm. uh, uh, so they thought that you know the guy who's bringing you. This uh, Buddy Holly record on a rib cage uh, may have some uh, cracks in his own rib cage. That they're, you know, that those guys are even scarier than the authorities if you step awry of them. But also that they, you know, what they're doing in this instance, if you want to wrap a story or 
a adventure around it is more sympathetic than virtually anything else the voyage Zaconi would be involved in uh, and uh, and so if you want to sort of have sympathetic 50s uh, Russian mobsters at least for a little while you could focus on the ones who are uh, smuggling these records around so how do we want to uh, how many riffs of uh, story ideas uh, can we uh, uh, get out of this if there's uh, our uh, modern day occult investigators uh, suddenly get a 1957 Tony Bennett record etched onto uh, uh, somebody's uh, X-rayed pelvis, uh, how does that lead into a, a fun occult adventure? Well, I think, first of all, um, you have a lot of possibilities because, of course, as Pythagoras reminds us, and Jocelyn Godwin has written a number of excellent books for people who are better at musicology than me, which is virtually anyone, um, uh, to elaborate, uh, music is an occult art, right? The chords have magical meanings. They have number meanings. Numbers can turn into Kabbalah or Gematria or however you want to go from there. So any given musical structure is also a magical code. And the body parts also respond and correspond to the astrological signs of the zodiac, to the, the major flows of key in the body of the earth. So any combination of those two creates a dual magical text, just by definition. Whether it's, you know, Tony Bennett or the Andrews Sisters or whatever it is, the music in question combined with the body part in question create a coded magical text. So you get Tony Bennett on a pelvis that's telling you something about um, uh, Scorpio and uh, depending on, on what key Tony is in and, and how many notes per uh, per bar and whatever else, you have a different magical code that is referencing Scorpio. And so you can have, you know, that, that could be a spell. That could be a working that you do to um, cause uh, impotence or blight. It could be a uh, coded reference to a map in part of the Earth that corresponds with the decans of Scorpio. And if you go deep into your, into your Agrippa and your John D, you can start doing that. So there's any number of different sorts of messages you can encode into it over and above the fun and creepy bit of it being music on body parts. And I think that the question when you start playing with bone music in your game is, is this scenery, is this just a, a whack visual thing, or is it something that, that is actually necessary, that in order for this magic to work, because these obsessed Vori sorcerers uh, from deep in the gulag, uh, you know, taking their Siberian uh, shamanistic trance music out and bur burying it into the deep cuts of a, of a, of a Duke Ellington... Uh, rec uh, record. The, the the question is, you know, does it have to be bone music? It, w did they pick medical x-rays just because it was a cheap source of, of acetate, or did they pick them because they have an occult power, or did they pick them by accident, and then when enough Soviet secret magicians listened to it, they realized that there was an occult power to it, and that that's the real reason Khrushchev, who by and large was not as opposed to Western influence entering Russia as, say, Stalin, was, was the guy who actually had to crush it in 1959. One of the points here is that the more trouble you have to go to in order to experience the joy of music, the more you get out of it when you do listen to it. So, for example, today, in order to listen to Little Richard, I just need to go to RDO or whatever streaming service uh, you subscribe to, dear listeners, and uh, hit a few buttons and bang, I'm listening to Little Richard. I've got now sort of three quarters of recorded music at my fingertips for five bucks a month. And it's a 
more convenient than even pulling a CD off my shelf. But if you have to deal with the mob to get the new little Richard record, and it's on a skull, and you know that you're in danger from the government as well, when you do finally play it, and you have to play it in a ritualized, you know, protected space where only your dearest friends are with you, and there's a bond that that creates with you, that you are caring way more about that music than even anybody at the same time listening to it uh, back home in, in America. And so it may be that the part of the magic of these things is the magic of people's uh, joy and excitement and even the thrill of the forbidden that gets woven into the grooves as people listen to it. So it may be that you have an artist who was a recording artist in the 50s who was forgotten back home, uh, but is was still very much listened to uh, in the Soviet uh, Union. And there's sort of a parallel story uh, with the recording artist Rodriguez, uh, who's featured in the documentary Searching for Sugar Man, where he was, uh, he recorded in the late 60s in America, and his albums totally flopped in America. Nobody knew them except a few cognoscente, but they got into South Africa, which had similar restrictions on Western culture for similar reasons. But the then sort of uh, hippie generation uh, latched onto this music and uh, uh, really, really loved it. And it became, you know, he's a superstar still in South Africa, although he didn't know it for decades and mm -hmm. they thought he was dead. Uh, if you sort of transpose those ideas into this, there may be a similar artist who's uh, only remembered uh, in the grooves now of the this bone music and in the memories of a very few people who went to great risks in order to uh, preserve it. So maybe there's a magical connection between him and the bone music and that in order to... Uh, uh, protect him, and maybe he has gone on to, uh, uh, unlike Rodriguez, he's become uh, possibly a, a super bad guy, or maybe he's a super uh, good guy who you have to protect in his dotage, and that these uh, last few uh, bone music versions of his records are the ones that contain his mystical essence, and so that you have to control them in order to protect him. Yeah, the um, the notion that the bone music holds, uh, just like, you know, the skeleton is the memory of the body after death, and so you have a good symbolic uh, weight there, but the bone music holds the only recording of this one jazz man who saw the transcendent was assumed up by, by, by the archetypes in an unknown armies game, or maybe uh, they uh, figured out that the, the chords that summon Azathoth or, or Nirlathotep and their music got into the Soviet Union, and that's part of why everything sort of fell apart for the for the Soviet experiment is because someone played the Azathoth music wrong or something like that. Uh, there was a there's a number of, of things that you can do where the only recording is on this bone music and you have to hunt it down and then you have creepy post-Soviet necrophile Soviet mafiosi who would make you know great villainous you know masterminds and and horrible uh, people for your gritty modern day occult adventure to go through. I kind of want to also talk though. In, in addition to our, our modern day treating of this as, as art artifacts and found artifacts, uh, and maybe as the, as the weird obsession of a, of a Russian mobster, I also kind of want to go back and, and think about what does this mean in a game that is set during the, the, the 40s and 50s? What does this mean in, uh, I mean, are you playing, uh, Americans who are 
having to go into the Soviet Union and make contact with these Stilyagi? Are you playing heroic Stilyagi who have got the power of of Kabbalah and liberated, liberatory music uh, magic that, that comes uh, from the West, and you're finding uh, the magical power of Buddy Holly, and you're using it to keep the Stalinist night from descending for just one more week. How do you how do you play this in the period of the of the fifties? Um, I, I think that at, at, at some level you'd want to make sure that the musical component of it stayed strong, because otherwise it's just like you know finding a tome in in Call of Cthulhu. It's like oh look, I found a tome. Now I have. Uh, summon Night Gaunt and Bind Night Gaunt. That's, I'm glad that they were both in that one tome. And then you just keep going on. But the tomeness of it doesn't really come to forward unless you're playing something like Bookhouse. We also want to address the question of whose x-rays are they? <laughs> so if you are one of these hipsters and you get uh, beaten up by the cops and then there are x-rays taken of your injuries in the hospital, if you can get a hold of your x-rays and then have the music that you were, you have your Stan Kenton music uh, etched onto it, uh, that then binds you with the magic of defiance, and so that you may then become a um, powerful still Yagi sorcerer uh, through that. That may be your initiation rite. It may be that all of the sorcerers have to get themselves beaten up, x-rayed, and then have the right uh, music that's thematic to what it is, that the to the sphere of magic that they want to uh, control. Now, it could just be something as obvious as Frank Sinatra singing witchcraft, or you could have that the song itself determines what sphere of magic that you are uh, connected to. So, you know, Splish Splash, I Was Taking a Bath, uh, gives you water control music. Perfect for killing Batman. Uh, yeah, there we go. Or, uh, you know, t- Teddy Bear gives you power over animals. And, and, the, and it could be sort of the modern day, uh, I, I like this as the modern day equivalent of, of the shamanic tattoo. That You have the, the tattoo that puts you in touch with the that part of the spirit world. So you've got a fish tattooed on your arm so you can do fishing magic. You've got a, uh, a deer head tattooed on your other arm so you can do hunting magic. And the notion that you have to keep going back, getting beaten up, Give yourself uh, heavy metal poisoning so you can get your GI tract x-rayed, whatever it is. You have to get the proper injury. It can't just be, you know, after the first couple, it can't just be, oh, another cracked skull. Sorry, you've used your cracked skull slot uh, for this one, uh, for, for, for Duke Ellington giving you um, uh, uh, the, the magic of, 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 this, of, the, of the coolness in the still pond. You have to now uh, get something else broken and damaged so you can have the the liberatory or charm magic of, of uh, Louis Armstrong. And so you've got all of these different things, but they're each a special tattoo. And once that part of you has been covered with one spell, you can't go back and just recover it because you can't have your humorous broken twice and then etch two different songs onto it. They'd overlap and cause terrible magical backlash. And maybe if you just do it randomly, you just sort of wander around in uh, Stalinist and Khrushchevite Russia and, succumb to the kinds of natural injuries that a still yog succumbs to and then accept that whatever someone etches into you is the magic that you were born to have that sort of fool's magic might be more powerful because you didn't try to control it you let the magic flow into you it was a genuinely shamanic experience where you get torn up and wait for your spirit animal to appear to you as opposed to you say no no i i really want a fox totem i don't want a a lemur totem you know or whatever right so so you get yourself beaten up but it's not up to you what songs the mob decides to etch on your x-rays and that's what gives you your power and once a 
means of sorcery comes into the world, the social circumstances that required it to be expressed in that particular way may fall away, but the sorcery may still remain, meaning that uh, today there may be uh, Russian magicians who uh, still are hoarding this antique x-ray equipment in order that they can be uh, uh, beaten up, x-rayed on it, and then have uh, the music of their choice etched into it. But now the limitation is uh, no longer bound by time. So, you know, the, there, there's a new generation who are having uh, nine-inch nails or K-pop etched into it, and there's the older generation of uh, original Survivor guys who uh, think that's out of line right. or is risking uh, wild, uncontrollable magic, and that can give your your war between your generations of uh, bone music magicians. Yeah, the um, uh, the Vorisva swing as opposed to the Vorisva bebop. There's a, a great uh, battle amongst them. Um, uh, I, I think that you can also start talking about, now that you have new technologies, because obviously you... When you take, say, a, a modern-day x-ray, you go into the doctor's office, the x-ray's on film, sure, but if you have anything really complex done to you, any kind of MRI reading, that goes on to a digital recording, right? That goes into a CD, fundamentally. And what if you take that CD and then you re-etch that CD in, like, a modern-day CD, but with uh, CD music? You could create a modern-day kind of bone music CD that is actually a digital picture of your brain. And so maybe that's the big uh, jump that they've got uh, overwritten CDs that, uh, that contain your, your brain and your, 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 your personality. And if you are a particularly scientific sort of person, your soul is, is captured on your MRI. And so therefore the, um, uh, the, that's a, a more powerful writing than just boring old boon music. And so these new guys have got They've opened up a, a real door to perception, and as we know from horror, whenever you open up a real door to perception, Nirlathotep comes back through and Someone makes your life... Someone just might um, be perceiving you back. Exactly. And, and on that inevitable note, it's time to inevitably move to our next segment. Robin, I know what you've been saying. You'd love to invite ghouls into your game, but what about the expense? It's true, Ken. There's nothing I'd love better than having gibbering, corpse-eating, dog-headed monsters with me at all times, but I have to watch my dollars. Well, now you can have both horrific graveyard entities and your dollars, because the KWAS single Hideous Creatures Ghouls is free for a limited time. What? That means I can bring all kinds of horrid ghouls with wildly dangerous and unpredictable powers and statistics into my living room. That's right, Robin. Like all the hideous creatures issues, Ghouls gives you lots of new ways to change familiar monsters into something even worse to keep your players on their toes and on the run. And their characters too, right? Um, sure. It's also got rules for ghoul changelings and becoming a ghoul, and ghoulish clues for every ability in Trail of Cthulhu, as well as legendary ghouls, contradictory ghoul truths, and tasty gobbits of scenario. Well, when Ken writes about stuff, you know it's going to be legendary, contradictory, and... Gobbit rich. And now it's free, just lying around like an unburied body waiting for you to devour it. In a gaming sense, that is. Um, sure. Follow the filthy splayed footprints. 
or the link in the show notes to all the ghouls you could ever wish for. And more! That's Hideous Creatures Ghouls, a free KWA single from Pelgrane Press. The smooth purr of the recommendation engine pulling into the gravel driveway tells us that the recommendation engine has arrived, pulling into our gravel driveway. It's a little tautological, but that's what recommendations are. <laughs> uh, Robin, do you have a opening um, uh, gun with which to gun our recommendation engine? So the first thing I would like to recommend on recommendation engine, our segment of uh, random, arbitrary, and surprising recommendations... Uh, is a television series, uh, The Nick, that's starring Clive Owen, all episodes directed by uh, Steven Soderbergh. <laughs> she, and Sheila, uh, my wife Sheila, just paused the, um, uh, <laughs> paused the recording that she's listening to and has gone to the Netflix uh, panel right now. Uh, it's it. on uh, Cinemax, ah. uh, and they just they completed their first season, so I think we're in that sort of nether realm between the DVD box set coming out when the beginning of the new season comes out, but, you know, there are ways to find things in this uh, modern universe. Um, so it's a uh, medical show, which normally I would uh, not watch because I'm a hospital foe. But weirdly enough, a show about the state of medicine in 1900, where everything is gruesome and they're just figuring out blood types and all the basic things. I heard about this. This is kind of the Jacob Reese social realist medical show, isn't it? Uh, I do not know the reference. Jacob Reese is the... Um, uh, sort of social reformer, and he wrote about all the awful stuff that was going on in New York. And he was sort of the, the, one of the beginnings of, of social activism in America. Well, there is a social activist uh, bent to it in that uh, the Knickerbocker Hospital that it's set in is the one hospital that has not moved out of the slums to uptown. At least uh, that's where it is at the beginning of the season. And so uh, it's about the dawn of modern medicine and is uh, shocking in a lot of ways because it uh, reminds you of just how incredibly recent in human mm -hmm. history uh, all of these discoveries uh, are. It has, uh, uh, Clive Owen has a brilliant performance as the troubled anti-hero figure that we are now familiar with from all sorts of cable series. So he's uh, a, a brilliant surgeon who's making all of these discoveries, but he's also injecting uh, cocaine as if it is uh, merely a safe anesthetic that goes in soft drinks, which, is, of course, is what it is largely thought to be. Um, and he becomes increasingly uh, manic through the uh, course of the season. There's a great episode where the, the cocaine supply uh, runs out because of the war in the Philippines. And, you know, they can't even get any from the soft drink. Oh, no. <laughs> and uh, in addition to its uh, subject matter and the uh, great performances of its ensemble cast is the way that it is shot and presented because it is uh, shown to us in a very Soderbergh-y style. It has that sort of energetic, unpredictable energy, that sort of roving framing, the uh, bright, saturated colors, uh, and it has an electronica score by Cliff Martinez. And so all of those things pull away at the stuffy, sepia-toned uh, imagery that you expect you're going to get for something yeah, 7 Yeah, like Ken Burns and lots of violins. Uh, yeah, so... Or it, fiddles, rather. not Never a violin, only fiddles. Yeah, so it seems very, uh, very modern and contemporary, even though there's a sort of vast gulf in time. Uh, one of the other leading characters is a, uh, a black doctor who, after uh, with great reluctance from everybody else involved, is sort of inserted into the team by the uh, wealthy philanthropists who give money to the hospital. And the 
uh, depiction of racism is really shocking as well because it's not just sort of mild racism. It's not the bad, only just the unsympathetic characters. It's, uh, you know, the pure hatred toward him that everybody, uh, the large number of the cast reflectively shows is also a real sort of a dash of, of cold water in the face. So uh, the Nick, uh, I would uh, recommend to uh, anyone who's interested in uh, history or med- medicine or medical shows, or in my case, Steven Soderbergh. All right. Um, I uh, am recommending manly things only, this uh, recommendation engine segment, and I will begin with the best James Bond story of, two- of 2014, possibly the best of the decade. Um, it's called From the Nothing with Love. It's by Project Ito, the Japanese uh, science fiction writer who died uh, fairly recently. And it is anthologized in Phantasm Japan, which is the uh, fantasy sequel to The Future is Japanese, which was the anthology of Japan Ease and Japan-oriented SF. And now they are doing Jap- Japanese and Japan-oriented fantasy, although the line between fantasy and SF is, is deliberately murkified in both anthologies. But this one is sort of, um, you know, the new weird, slipstreamy fantasies by and large, but the Project Ito story from The Nothing With Love is about James Bond, uh, although he's never named because of copyrights, but he uh, sort of begins and you think, oh, this is going to be a clever science fictional spy take on the different James Bonds, and it is, and then it becomes a much bigger, better, more interesting story, and all within a very small compass of words, you go from a nice little setup for a role-playing game to a terrifying meditation on reality and perception, all within the framework of a Bond story, and it's just, it's really, really good. It's well-translated by um, the guy who translated it, whose name escapes me, but I'm sure is written down somewhere, and it's one of those, you, you say, you know, it's worth buying the whole anthology just for this story. It kind of is worth buying the whole anthology just for this story. I haven't read the whole rest of the anthology. Nothing I have read in it is remotely as good yet, but I haven't read all of it. So who knows? Something else could come and, and surprise me and be fodder for a future recommendation engine. But if you love James Bond, if you love the horror and science fictional, I don't want to say wonder, but revelatory experience, the, the the sublimity of what we actually know about perception and time, check it out. It is really well worth reading. Actually, check out everything by Project Ito, but definitely uh, get this story if you are a Bond fan. I would, I, I, I feel the urge to build an anthology of James Bond stories around this story. It's so good. Uh, well, there's nothing that sounds more unpromising than a Bond pastiche, so if this is actually amazing, that's high recommendation indeed. Uh, the next thing I would like to recommend, as is my won't, is an ingredient. An ingredient. And that is dried limes. Mm. Uh, so okay. uh, what what you do when you get your dried limes, so you take them and you uh, uh, grate them using uh, your previous recommendation on the show, a, a micro-plane grater, and you uh, can add them to a, uh, a the flakes of a dried uh, lime interior and lime rind just go into whatever you are doing, a stew or a, uh, a roast, I think in particular it goes really well with. And it's, uh, it gives you a slightly, I think, a tangier uh, lime taste to the food uh, than uh, you would get from using kaffir lime leaves. Uh, the advantage of this is that something that's not particularly like a stew, like a roast, for example, uh, you can uh, suffuse the lime taste uh, through it, uh, at, which is hard to do with a non 
liquidy thing with the, the kefir lime leaves, and you don't have to uh, fish this out at the end as you do with the kefir lime leaves, and it gives a, a sort of an interesting, uh, surprising taste. So I recommend dried limes available wherever dried limes are sold. All right. Get your, get your dried limes today at your local dried lime emporium. Uh, I will recommend a film then to uh, continue uh, the, the, the sort of back and forth thing. Uh, and this one is Whiplash, which uh, the Academy Awards have also recommended for the performance of J.K. Simmons, but I would also like to recommend uh, the writing, uh, the uh, other performance by the guy who gets the joy and terror of acting opposite J.K. Simmons as the young drummer Coming up, it's a... It's a Miles Teller. It's a Ma- Miles Teller. It's a, it's a jazz prodigy film. And if you are right now turning uh, the podcast off and flinging your iPad across the room, it is not one of those jazz prodigy films. It is a real, honest-to-God, two-men-enter-one-man-leaves-steel-cage deathmatch of a jazz prodigy film. It's really well shot, really well written. Uh, the acting is two different kinds of excellent. It's just a really great movie, and if it hadn't been... For the Oscars, I think a lot of people would have let it go by, and I might have uh, not mentioned it until we did our 10 best. So I think that if you are interested, a lot of movie theaters are maybe still showing their movies that were in the Oscars uh, specials in inconvenient day uh, times during the weekend. Run out and get Whiplash, or uh, make a note and get it when it comes on your DVD in April, I suspect. To my great vexation, it is not currently playing in Toronto, and uh, a uh, life situation hit my fall, and so I'm further behind on movies than uh, I would normally be, but that is at the uh, top of my list, hence the vexation. Hence vexing. Uh, speaking of movies, I'm going to recommend a uh, 2010 film uh, by a Mexican director named Jorge Michel Grau, and it's called We Are What We Are. And this is your uh, a cannibal family film, uh, but it's uh, also this sort of claustrophobic uh, family drama. And it, uh, speaking of the sort of uh, uh, random or contingent or arbitrary universe that we uh, were uh, describing that uh, some stories take place in in the first segment, this is definitely uh, part of uh, that. It gives you that feeling of anything can happen at any time. Uh, basically what happens is that the uh, father in the family who has been uh, responsible for uh, hunting their victims up until now uh, succumbs uh, to the uh, prion effect that uh, succumbs to people who eat too many people at the beginning of the uh, film. And so therefore his uh, very uh, unstable, temper-prone uh, wife and their uh, two sons and daughter who've lived this sort of claustrophobic sheltered existence in uh, the middle of Mexico City, which is portrayed as an excellent hunting ground for cannibals because there's so many people that nobody uh, follows up on if they disappear. Uh, so it's about the uh, disintegration and the power shifts in this uh, family uh, after the loss of their father and is uh, shot in this really compelling style. There is an American remake, which is transposed to uh, the rural U.S., um, by a director named Jim Mickle, who's an interesting director, but uh, it is not uh, nearly as interesting or as uh, unflinching or as uh, socially interested as the original film. So uh, if you want to like that one, see it first and then see the really good original, which again is We Are What We Are by Jorge Michael Grau from 2010. Yeah, I saw that in 2010 at the at the Chicago Film Festival, and I didn't like it nearly as well as you did. I thought that it... Um, uh... It was, uh, contrary to your, uh, statement, I found it flinching, perhaps, in a little bit of, uh, 
a little bit too much. It was, it was all right. Um, the characters I didn't think were built out. Um, they, he, Growl leaned a lot on the fact that they were ghouls. I thought that the plot had definite idiot moments. Um, uh, there is a really great finish, which I think improves it in a lot of people's mind because it's a rip off of M and who doesn't love ripping off M? Um, but the, uh, but I, I, I didn't think it was as strong as you thought it was. I mean, if you're interested in the mise-en-scene and you're interested in ghoul movies, I'm sure it's superior to the American remake, but I didn't think it was, uh, all that and a bag of human fingers. So just... Next you'll be telling me you don't like dried limes. I have not tried dried limes because so far I am, uh, supplied with regular limes and occasionally even with lime leaves, but I will jump on dried limes. Uh, in a bit and get right back to you. Uh, do you have another recommendation? You have a shot at uh, coming back at me by saying that you don't like Jack London when, in fact, he is not just America's greatest socialist, but also America's greatest socialist writer. And he is, as far as I am concerned, one of the living models of how to write good. And if you are asking yourself how to write good, go read more Jack London. And I don't know if today's kids read uh, Call of the Wild and White Fang the way that I did when I was a youth, and I don't know if you are taught uh, to build a fire in your high school literature classes, but even if that is all the Jack London you have read, go back and read the vast quantity of more Jack London that exists. Uh, I don't think he was capable of putting together a bad story. His prose is very uh, well metered out. It, it's all very perfectly put together, but still alive and natural in a way that it's very hard to do. He's Hemingway without the pretentious garbage. Uh, he actually walked the walk. Um, he was a socialist because he was raised poor and worked in a tuna cannery and had to sort of, uh, you know, go on the, on the hobo pad and he got arrested and thrown in jail and had all kinds of real human experiences that he then put back into his writing. And then he made himself really, really rich by being a writer and took up, uh, with a, uh, uh, an apostle of free love as his second wife. So he, uh, he won everything except for the part where you don't die at 40 because he had a lot of health conditions, probably from, the previous uh, 20 years of his life that uh, caught up with him along with alcohol and uh, morphine. And so he wound up dying at 40, which is a real shame because not only did would he have had a lot of really interesting things to say about World War I and the 20s and maybe even into the Depression, um, he also left one of his best genre novels uh, unfinished, The Assassination Bureau Limited, which is about um, uh, sort of competing bands of assassins that, that go around and kill people. And to see his literary sensibility put into uh, such a pulp plot, it, it, you know, he, he dies right as the pulps are taking off, and I think if he'd been there to respond to um, uh, some of the early pulp writing in a sort of this-is-how-it's-done-kids way, I think we would have maybe seen a lot more great stuff out of Jack London, but it's not like there's a shortage of great stuff from Jack London. He's also got um, uh, a number of really good stories about his Time on the Road, sort of semi-autobiographical autobiographical fiction, which are gathered in, I believe, On the Drift is the collection, or The Human Drift, rather, which I recommend uh, picking up if you have a shot at it. And is there a, a novel that's a little bit off the beaten path if you're not interested in uh, a novel with a canine as a leading character? Uh, well, um, there is obviously The Star Rover, which is about a guy who has past lives that he lives through while being tortured in a uh, prison. Um, he, there is a, um, uh, obviously, um, uh, the sea wolf, which is a great story about a sort of a, a, a tough sailor. It's sort of brutal tale of that. Uh, I'm also really fond of the iron heel, which is his future novel about the war that happens after, uh, the socialist utopia, 
uh, comes apart in fascism, and this is the war that happens after that. I, I, I think this is the novel that really got up George Orwell's nose um, when he was saying that he accused uh, London of being a fascist. And while certainly there is an element of the national in his socialism, he was the f- farthest thing from a racist. He was, you know, a, a, a fan of Jack Johnson and pro uh, uh, Japanese immigration and all kinds of things. He, he was scared about the Chinese yellow peril, but that might have just been because it was 1900 and literally everyone was, and he didn't he didn't have enough experience at that time to to get above that. But he it, it was it wasn't for racial reasons. It was, and he was said even when he was writing about it, he says there's always the worry that when I write this, I'm just writing this as a selfish white man, and that there is no actual yellow peril. That it's just the way things are going to shake out. So you know, even his yellow peril worries are not racist yellow peril worries. Or if they are, he is aware of it. He owns his his, his white skin privilege and 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 writes about it. And in 1904, that's unknown. So he's um uh, he, he's got a lot going on for him, um, as well as just being a really really great writer, which I think is pretty much defends him against any possible accusation you might make. Uh, my final recommendation of this recommendation engine is the uh, soundtrack to Under the Skin by Mika Levy. Uh, we might be discussing this film a little later on when we get to our top ten, but for this purpose, the uh, sort of swooping, creepy, disorienting uh, soundtrack uh, music is a big part of what makes that film work, and you can repurpose it. Uh, it's on, again, on uh, the streaming service Ardio, and I bet it's on other ones as well, and you can use that for uh, any sort of horror gaming that uh, you don't want to invoke sort of classic gothic tropes or the way that, you know, we're typically used to horror movie music sounding. Uh, there's a, a, a hint of, of a thereminish tone in it, although I think it's achieved com- with, with strings. And it's a really compelling, unearthly uh, uh, package of music that you can use for uh, modern horror or for uh, horror-tinged uh, science fiction, and so uh, give that a listen, and if you use music in your games, uh, you will find things to use it for. My final uh, manly recommendation is New York State Rieslings, uh, especially from the Finger Lakes region. Uh, I have uh, perhaps spoken on this very podcast about the Riesling, but if I have not, uh, white wine used to be what everyone, uh, certainly all manly men, drunk uh, at lunch before we had soda pop and before the Kaiser wrecked everything with his stupid war. Um, so you had, uh, and, and it's still, uh, you, you get a, a decent Riesling. Don't drink a, a Riesling that is being grown by people who wish they were growing shabbly or whatever, because you, if you drink a dry Riesling, you're kind of wasting the whole point of drinking a Riesling as far as I'm concerned, and that's what a lot of the Northwest uh, Pacific Northwest Rieslings turn out to be. Um, but if you drink a good uh, mid, mid-range mid Riesling, uh, or if you you know want to guarantee it, you can go to, get into your Spettlases and Auslases uh, and drink um, uh, the, the later Harvest ones, which are going to have more, more sugar in them, uh, you're getting a really interesting bunch of flavors. You're getting the lovely alcoholic vinous hit, and you are able to accompany it with almost anything that you might eat as a cold lunch, even beef, uh, because of the fruit uh, is still strong enough in a in a in a good riesling that you're not um, solely uh, drinking it for the 
what I want to say, the patina that, that the that the wine leaves on your tongue, you're actually drinking it for the for the grape flavor as well. So it, it works out really well with like roast beef or with uh, chicken or with any kind of you know um, lunch that you might be eating. And also, obviously, it's really good with um, uh, uh, white uh, meat and pork and things like that just at dinner. But and, and your wider your wider manly recommendation then is drink at lunch. Drink at lunch. Yes, that is my manly manly recommendation. There there's where Hemingway beats uh, uh Jack London. Although I think actually Jack London was also drinking at lunch, but he just didn't write about it like a big baby, like a big show off. Um right. but, well there's the <laughs> distinction between uh Drinking at lunch and just drinking all day, including lunch. Including lunch. Two separate Two things. separate manly recommendations. But in American Rieslings, I, uh, the finest that I've had are from upstate New York, uh, the Finger Lakes region. Uh, I had a, f- a friend of mine, Josh, uh, was gro- grown up there, and his folks used to send him a case of wine every Christmas. And we finally talked them into sending him a case of Riesling from upstate New York. And that was the best game of Arkham Horror that has ever been played, was the day that that case of wine came to the house. So I can recommend uh, drinking it. I can recommend uh, making it, uh, seeking it out. And if you are lucky enough to live, I suspect, in the eastern third of the country, you have a better shot at finding New York Rieslings, but they're worth tracking down. And if you can't, you know, the, the, they're perfectly good German Rieslings that are really great, that are like 10 bucks or 8 bucks a bottle, and it's not going to, you know, cost you a, a huge amount to, to have that either. So... And uh, Ontario wines from the Pelee Island region are essentially the same wine region, and uh, they also have some great uh, Rieslings and also even sweeter wines, uh, Gewürztraminer. So if you uh, don't find any uh, Finger Lakes uh, New York wine in your uh, local liquor store and you do find some Ontario uh, Rieslings or Gewürzes, uh, you've also probably stumbled onto something special. Look for the VQA a uh, label of quality that marks superior Ontario wines. <laughs> uh, and I guess we're out of uh, recommendations, so it's time to depart the recommendation engine and move on to the next segment. Once again, re-ensconced in his crackling leather chair, which you access by climbing a flight of crooked cobweb stairs, you enter his parlor. The portrait of Madame Blavatsky is no longer uh, glowering down at him because she's happy that he's back from his trip to Paris. It's the consulting occultist. Uh, This also doubles as an Ask Ken and Robin segment because Nick Eden has asked the consulting occultist to tell us all about the Soviet occult, for example, Borchenko, Boki, uh, and so on and so forth. Now, I'm uh, unaware of the Soviet occult because I have always thought, hey, Soviets, they're uh, hardcore uh, materialists, except, of course, when they're etching magical songs onto uh, x-rays. Onto records. Uh, so, uh, Ken, well, presumably this uh, question suggests that there is a Soviet occult. Uh, what's the deal with it? There are a couple of deals with the Soviet occult. The first is that the, the Russian... Uh, uh, occult tradition goes all the way back, as we've mentioned before. Um, there's, you know, the, the Russians, like everybody else, came out of a, a magical world before they uh, accreted uh, Western science and learning onto it. And like every culture, they kept as much of their previous cultural beliefs as they possibly could while um, folding rationalism and, and Western thought into their belief system as well. And then at the right before the revolution, there is an explosion of occultism in Russia. We talked about Papus going to Russia, being part of that. 
Uh, we also have, of course, Rasputin, but there's a lot more. There is occultism and mysticism generally come into the arts, uh, the poetry of Alexander Bloch, the music of Scriabin. All these guys are powerfully in their mind composing occult realities in their art. And so there is a, a big blow up of that that is getting set to sort of take over the Russian art scene. And then the Bolsheviks come and massacre everybody. And for a while, under Gorky, uh, Gorky believes that part of what makes the Soviet experiment grand is its ability to lead into all frontiers of human experience. And for our listeners, Gorky is? Ma uh, Maxime Gorky, he was one of these sort of uh, leading party ideologists. He was a aviation uh, enthusiast, among other things. Uh, the world's largest airplane for a while was named the Maxime Gorky. Uh, he had a pretty uh, solid position in the Politburo, but eventually wound up getting uh, bounced uh, because he was uh, a literary critic first and a murderer second, and that's always the way. You've got to pick. Uh, <laughs> so, so he wound up basically being shoved out of the out of the out of the leadership in the twenties, and then um, you know moved to Italy. Uh, he uh, came back to Russia and, and died in obscurity. Um, but while he was still a leading Bolshevik, he protected a lot of these sort of Bolshevik philosophes, I guess, to, to use the, the, the term. So it's people like Luna Chartsky, who later on pioneered the Soviet Psychic Research Division. Uh, he was a Gorkyite. Um, there was there were other um, uh, sort of people in his circle who were weird. Let's just say that. Artsy, I, I'll bet they would have said. Um, and so he wound up uh, being part of that and also in that Loeb, although not necessarily part of the Gorky set, are people like Gleb Bokey, who was uh, Lenin's cryptographer and head of sort of the what they called the secret section, which was the NSA of, of ancient uh, Bolshevik Russia. And he um, uh, believed in, uh, since he was obsessed with SIGINT, he was obsessed with sending signals mind to mind. So he believed in mind transfer, he believed in telepathy. And he began to think, well, if everything is mind, right, if, if you are creating these messages in your mind and, and you can send them in your mind, are you creating the reality in your mind? And he starts sort of moving himself towards Gnosticism and, and towards these kinds of, um, what do I want to say, beliefs? Let's say beliefs. But you've also got Gnosticism shows up in, in people like Eisenstein. He, he's looking at Gnosticism as a as a way to understand film, that perhaps as a way to understand black and white film, even. Um, but he's got a uh, a lot of interest in that. So there's sort of a, a, a movement in the Soviet arts sphere, certainly in the 20s, of people investigating this sort of occult universe. And then as uh, Stalin... It's not so much that he purges them for being occultists, he purges them for not being Stalin, but a lot of them wind up having said things about art that turn out not to be in conformance with Stalin's socialist realist notions and can be purged for that. And so, and so you have sort of a, as you say, the if materialist... Stalin wanted to purge you, he was going to find a, find a reason. Find a reason. Yeah. And, and so as you say, there is sort of, a, uh, it's sickly door by a, a materialist cast of thought and it turns into your, uh, your psychic warfare programs and things like that, as opposed to your magic. But for a bit, there are people like Boki who are able to protect a number of questers or um, uh, occultists within the secret section of the uh, Cheka, and then I guess later the NKVD. And so he had a buddy named Alexander Barchenko, who was uh, believed in Shambhala, the mystical Tib uh, Tibetan Buddhist um, uh, 
uh, underworld slash magical realm, and decided it was in Russia, which was a previous Russian belief, but is now even truer because everything great is in uh, Russia because of the Soviet experiment, and he wanted to go looking for uh, the Shambhala that was in Russia, or maybe the one that was in Tibet, or maybe an ex-Tibet, so that it would be in Russia after all. And he's part of that same movement that on the white side leads you to the excitement of Baron Ungarn von Sternberg, and on, or Baron von Ungarn Sternberg, and in other realms leads you to Nicholas Rorick, whose paintings and expe expedition into Central Asia looking for magical plants got uh, Henry Wallace into so much trouble, and I'm pretty sure that we've talked about Nicholas Rorick and Henry Wallace previously on the podcast. But Barchenko is another one of these guys, and he was basically, uh, he kept playing cards as new reasons were found to purge him, and they would say, well, we're purging you because you're unrealistic. He's like, no, I've got an expedition, and I brought back all this information. Okay, you're a scientist. Um, now we're purging you because your science is, is not proper. He says, well, I'm working on a dangerous biological weapon that we can perfect using the magic of Shambhala. And they're like, all right, I'll give you a second to build me a bioweapon. <laughs> and then eventually, you know, he just runs out of plays, and in the big purge in 36-37, he gets uh, taken out. So Barchenko, who is sort of um, the, you know, I don't, uh, he's not so much the, 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 the John D, but he's sort of the, the occult explorer of, of the Soviet era. He can be your, your way to port all manner of, of crazy stuff in. And of course, because Boki is sitting there like a spider at the center of his, um, uh, of his web, he believes that, you know, he, he has all kinds of, of magical power coming into his, his fingers. And there is also a really strong belief in the occult about apocalypticism, right? That, you know, you're going to have the new age is going to come and it's going to wipe away all the old age and bring us a new age. Well, that's communism also. And people like Tsiolkovsky, who believed um, in the sort of Tyler du Chardin, uh, man creates his own universe and his own gods type world, but he believed in, in a Soviet way that if you properly harnessed your will, you could theosophically bring about uh, the new root race of new Soviet man and uh, awaken Adam and Eve, who were the perfect Soviet man and lived in the Pamir Mountains, uh, <laughs> and uh, they would come out and, and lead you to the, the, the new era. That's sort of what I'm playing with with the Narts in um, uh, Day After Ragnarok. And so you've got a, a number of these sort of, of apocalyptic and, uh, and secret knowledge and just pure on Russophilia themes that flow toward um, occultism, in a way. There's a guy named... Um, Nikolai Fedorov, who was a socialist who died in 1903, but was apparently very influential, who believed that you would resurrect all of the dead and uh, magically, and then once they were resurrected, they would be a, a blank slate, and you could put them into work camps, and they would uh, do only socialist labor, because that's <laughs> what they would have learned there in the dead. So it's sort of a necromantic uh, Paul Pot without the part where you make everyone dead first. Yes, well, that, I guess that's it, the perfectibility of mankind. You kill them. And, and keep them working. Until they're perfect. Um, and and uh, Tsiolkovsky is sort of a, a Fedorovist, if you will, and he is, of course, also a big rocketry pioneer, so maybe you can do something with uh, Tsiolkovsky's rockets and Gorky's uh, airplanes and have some sort of aerial uh, magic going on. But there is a lot of this that is a big component, because it's a big component of the pre-Bolshevik Russian character and Russian artistic scene, and 
Stalin does purge it, but he's not so much purging them because they're magicians. He's purging them because they're bad Stalinists. As everyone who is not Stalin eventually became. Eventually became. Um, yeah, the, although Beria, uh, in fairness, was never purged. Uh, he, <laughs> much to everyone's anger. The, the two books on this are a, a collection by Bernice Glatzer Rosenthal. She edited it called The Occult in Russian and Soviet Culture. And the book Red Shambhala by Andrei Znamensky, which uh, sort of gives you the Boki Barchenko look-see. That's pretty much the only book on the topic, uh, and it is uh, from Quest Books, which is sort of a theosophical publishing house, so uh, take it with that particular grain of people's salt, but it is well worth reading to open up that chapter of crazy in a otherwise differently crazy world. So should you get the uh, green light to do the uh, Russian uh, book in the Trail of Cthulhu Hounds uh, series, uh, how are you going to make use of uh, all of this uh, occult ferment? Uh, I think part of it will be in the background as uh, because the, 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 the series would be set during the purge, right? During the purge year of 36, 37. So... Um, that, or that's sort of the ideal time to play it because that's when you have the maximum amount of paranoia and danger. And so all these guys are getting whacked. Barchenko is gone or is going to go. Uh, Boki is, is, is dead already. Uh, and so you would have them as the people leaving the landmines around for your characters to step on. And you have the possibility that some of their insights can be used to combat the mythos, but the act of researching their researches is a treasonous act by definition. And so you have not just the mythos will kill you for mythos reasons, it's the anti-mythos or the understanding of the mythos may also kill you for non-mythos reasons, that there's a new level of danger to investigation. And I think that making them sort of the, the buried power lines or, or landmines in the intellectual uh, uh, necropolis that is Stalin's Russia is kind of an interesting way to go. And you can always have, if you want to, a, a secret uh, society of of um, uh, the Kenyani, uh, ex for example, which is sort of Lovecraft's Hyperborea or Lovecraft's Shambhala. You just have there be a branch of Kenyani in Siberia that are somehow uh, master manipulators and sneaking around being invisible and shape-shifting and, uh, and, and can stand in as uh, uh, horror analogs to the NKVD who are also invisible and shape-shifting and can be all around you. So I think that there's a lot of possibilities. I think making Barchenko's Hyperborea or Barchenko's um, uh, Shambhala a real mythos destination is, is going to be a core element of it. And then things like, you know, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky wanting to massacre everyone and turning them into perfect Soviet man is, you know, that's fun just by itself. Uh, and I suppose you could uh, have sort of a Scarlet Pimpernel aspect where uh, there's a, uh, there's not really a good sorcerer in a Lovecraftian universe, but there's someone who has, uh, uh useful secrets that, uh, might be put, uh, to the use of humanity instead of Cthuloid entities or Stalin. So you could be trying to, uh, smuggle them out and get them to, uh, safety. Uh, how would you use these, uh, figures in this, uh, period to inform a, a modern day occult, uh, game? Um, in a modern-day occult game, I think that what you do is you have, as the post-Soviet uh, era rapidly turns into the uh, uh, new Putinist era, I think you have a possibility, either you're playing guys who are going to war with Putin because you've seen this movie before and you know what happens now, and you have to sort of find all of these old Soviet occult secrets before they're once more gathered under the wing of the FSB and hidden away from you forever, or... 
you are Westerners who, uh, just like uh, Westerners do, are buying job lots of things that are being smuggled out of Russia, and then they explode on you. That the presence of some Barchenko bio uh, weapon that is inert in conditions of Soviet reality, you take it to Mount Shasta, or you take it to uh, Sedona in Arizona, or some other magic mountain, and suddenly it blooms up, and you have created a, a sentient bi- uh, socialist bioplague, or something like that. I think that you can use that as the as the trigger for the big bad, or you can use it, uh, again, much like our, our bone music, as sort of the, the interesting flavor that tells you how you got this thing, or you can make it the basis of a whole, you know, occult warfare within the Russian mafia, unknown armies type game. Uh, well, I think that's all kinds of uh, suggestions and a great grounding uh, in uh, what seemed like an oxymoron when we were saying Soviet occult. And uh, we can therefore pronounce this segment and therefore this episode complete. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Plot Points. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Palgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Inscribe yourself on the X-rays of our hearts by hitting the donate button at Ken and Robin talk about stuff.com. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or poetic demise by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>